Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Code Vine for July 21st, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, good to have you on. And just a little uh, housekeeping, Catherine has the night off. And our guest in about 20 minutes joining us will be Mr. Robin Barrow coming back for I don't know how many times, uh, but we love having Robin as a guest, uh, one of the, the folks that is willing to um, go into the lion's den, so to speak, and, and, and preach democratic principles on Fox News and Fox Business News on a quite frequent basis, although he's not limited just to those uh, places. He speaks anywhere um, that anywhere, anybody that's smart enough to invite him. Um, but until then, we got a bunch of topics, and the first one – we're going to talk about it. it's really what's kind of been the focal point of the week, and I believe it happened last weekend. I'm sure we mentioned it to a point, but we've really had time to let it flesh itself out, and there's been rallies and everything else. Um, the tweets, and, and there were multiple later on, defenses of the first one, of Donald Trump uh, attacking four you know, freshman Democratic congresswomen, all women of color, um, and he attacks them with such language, such – it's almost too much for dog whistles. The old come back, go back to where you came from trope. Uh, the crazy thing is, even though it would have been horrible if he would have just been attacking Representative Oman, Oman with that uh, attack, he attacked three American birth-born citizens with that same attack. Um you know, just uh, just completely out of bounds. And, of course, that's bad enough that Donald Trump did it. It's been defended by almost the entire um, Republican Party. No one is willing in public to stand up to him. Uh, Tim, what's your thoughts on this whole mess? Well, you know, I, I saw this sort of thing played out. Not on Twitter, of course, because it was 47 years ago, but uh, Nixon and his crowd in 1972 went to incorporating some of this, I like to call it dog whistle politics. That's, that's basically what it is. They, they, they were hollering in those times. It was the first time I ever heard, America, love it or leave it. In other words, Trump, Trump Trump is picking on people of color. All four of these women, of course, are women of color. He would like to paint them as the face of the Democratic Party. Um, it, it tie them up with the code words, uh, socialist and you know, they they hate America, they hate Israel, they they hate our way of life, you know, they hate everything about this country, and if they don't, you know, love this country, then they ought to go back to the crime-ridden, infested places that they're from, and, uh, you know. And, 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 you know, his hardcore support, that's right, Mr. President, you tell him we feel the same way. Uh, and, of course, it spilled over into that rally that we're going to be talking about in just a minute. But it started out with these tweets, and Trump hasn't let up on those tweets either, David. Just this morning, he took off after the same four women again. Uh you know, last year they, they tried this out with uh, Pelosi and uh, Maxine Wilson. Uh, that didn't work out so well for them. So th this is going to be, 
You're seeing the beginnings of Donald Trump's campaign and what he's going to do. And I'm here to tell you right now that this is going to get uh, a whole lot worse, much, much, much worse. And the question I have for you right now, David, is this. What, what do we do about this? Well, and that is going to shape uh, the election. Now, this is one thing I think you could tell real quickly. I mean, beyond just saying that this is racist and, and all these other things, you could say, well, you know, back during the last presidential administration, there was some orange uh, orange guy running all around the country saying how America had fallen on such hard times uh, that it needed to be made great again because it wasn't great. Um, how was that not un-American. How come that guy didn't have to go back to Germany since all he wanted to do is talk about how America, you know, no longer great, uh, had to be made great again. I mean, so if you're going to say that if you criticize the nation in any way, you're un-American, how can you ever seek self-improvement? I mean, we obviously know that no nation on earth is 100% perfect 100% of the time. It's probably... Not even 0% of the time is it 100% perfect or anything else because it's made of humans, and humans are fallible beings. So, therefore, there's going to be things to criticize and improve, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a difference in that and um, just, you know, being wholly uh, un-American, saying that we should do some of these other things. But, but see, the problem is… Trump's target audience for this is his base. He is going to try to run this tight little gauntlet uh, and and win the race essentially the same way he won it before. There's a chance he could lose the next presidential race by – oh, I don't know, five million votes and still win the Electoral College and win the presidency. That's what he's going to try to do. And the purpose of this is to gin his base up. And the the attack lines go something like this. First, you paint certain people as the face of your opposition. In this case, it'll be the Democratic Party. Now, you know, by doing it the way he did it, of course that's racism. This had Stephen Miller all over it. I even saw him out on the on some of these talk shows trying to defend it, if you can believe that. And it is just overt and overt racism. The second thing he's going to do is identify these opponents as hating America. In other words, we're patriots, and he called some of the people at that rally, you know, we're going to talk about patriots, you know, that were hollering, send, send them home, send her home. Uh, so that's patriotism. We're the patriots. The other side hates everything about our beloved country. And he he is going to, uh, say that as a result, they're all a bunch of socialists. These, the, the, the radicals have taken over the party. Uh, that's code for the brown ladies, by the way. And Trump knows one more thing, and he's very good at it, I have to admit. This is television as theater. And he knows that every time this stuff goes on, he's the lead story, he's the second, the third story, he dominates the news, he gets all the free publicity, he doesn't have to spend any money, it's just no problem with him doing this, and don't worry about Trump hitting a bottom. There is no bottom for Donald Trump. Donald Trump, if nothing else, has convinced me uh, and should convince everyone that there is nothing that he will not do, no place that he will not go, uh, nothing that he will break, tear up, hurt, as long as it helps him. 
And that's and that's what this is all about. And this is going to be the I, I I almost dread this campaign. Well, I do dread this campaign because this this is going to be terrible. Uh, uh, there's going to be enough tweets like this, David, to to write a book. And 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 I I still have my question out there. What are we as a people in this country not only going to do about this election, but what are we going to do about this in general? Is this who we're going to be from now on? Did you see all of the world leaders and stuff that were to a person condemning it? Even his buddy over there in in England that's about to become the new prime minister uh, condemned it. Uh, Angela Merkel. I mean, we've got Leaders of Germany calling what Trump is doing Nazism and fascism. Now, now that's where we are in the affairs of the world. Of course, the Canadian prime minister just trashed him. Uh, I haven't seen anyone yet that even stepped forward and defended him. Uh, so we, th- things are really... Uh, Really sad. I, I'm I'm really bitterly disappointed at the American people for enduring such a thing and, and and letting it go on. And not only letting it go on, a bunch of them are stepping forward to say that no, it wasn't racism. No, uh, Stephen Miller said every time this president says anything, or or defends this country against these radicals, he's called a racist, he said. And on and on it goes. And I just don't see any end to it. Yeah, and as far as what do we do about it, I mean, obviously what the House did is one thing you do about it. You condemn his words. And then the craziness, uh, Doug Collins, congressman out of Gainesville, actually, I guess – tried to have Nancy Pelosi's words taken down when the resolution was put forth because it's not legal to call the president racist, which I I don't understand how there would be a law against that. Um, I guess, I mean, to me, it would be more of a grounds of there's freedom of speech and you can be as racist as you want to be. But um, there didn't make any sense that somebody would say, oh, well, there's a law against that. Um, which obviously that got taken back, and the resolution did pass virtually on party lines. There were about three Republicans that uh, voted for it, and then uh, Justin Amash of Michigan, who's now an independent, voted for it. Um, So that's what I guess you do in the short term. Now, I will say this. As far as a political strategy, you you mentioned Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters. Um, In the case of Nancy Pelosi, they've kind of proven – that she's just not that good a target anymore because they've worn it out. They used it in 2010. That dog would hunt, so to speak, and it has diminishing returns. And, of course, you burn everything out faster and faster. If Donald Trump is starting on this so early, when it counts in November 2020, when he wants it to count because he's on the ballot because he he didn't care about anybody else, is that dog going to hunt, especially if the nominee – doesn't group in nicely with the other four, is is that attack going to burn itself out? Should he have waited? Uh, if this was a, a really conceived political strategy, I think Donald Trump is much more fly by the seat of your pants, and, and he doesn't really plan anything out. I, I think planning would take reading and well, self-restraint, two things uh, Donald Trump is short on. I will say that Trump tweeted this last weekend – And I don't think he really thought there would be the uproar about it uh, that there has been. But in the interim, as he has been watching this, I believe he's decided that what's going on is actually good for him, that it will help him. So he's going to double down on it, and you already see him double doubling down on it. And if he gets by with this and it gins his base up, which is the point uh, of doing all of this, 
I, bl- I don't believe you've seen the end of anything. I, I think you're just seeing the beginning of it. I think it's going to be worse. Can After what he said and did to Hillary Clinton in 2016, can you just imagine some of the things that he's going to say and do to the Democratic nominee? What if the Democratic nominee, and there's a better than average chance it could be, is, say, a woman of color. Can you imagine if this, if he turns this sort of attack on the nominee of the Democratic Party? Can you just imagine? Yeah, and basically I think you're saying Kamala Harris because yeah. um, I don't think Tulsi Gabbard's, you know, going to be the nominee. Yeah. Um, and, and so, therefore, you know, uh, does that fit in? You could probably, in a, among these folks at these um, rallies and on some kind of just picture to people that know nothing about what's going on, you might could group the five of them together. Um, I, I think Kamala Harris has a longer political history. She, she's much more moderate and reasoned um, given her district attorney background. Um, probably, so I don't well, think she fits that nicely into that. Even just a female, even Elizabeth Warren could be uh, grouped into this um, as well. Um, but I still wonder if they didn't use it um, too early, nevertheless. But let's talk about some of the blowback um, on his own side and in his own family and administration. Uh, apparently, Mike Pence. Now, I'm picturing um, Smithers and, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Burns off of The Simpsons, uh, you know, that kind of rebuke that that Smithers would give um, with Mike Pence. And then also um, his own uh, wife, Melania Trump, his daughter, Ivanka Trump, they all apparently were not very happy. It sounded like Melania might have been the most motivated um, given that she's actually been an American citizen less time than Representative Oman, uh, maybe she took even more offense to it because of that. Um, but all of these people inside his own inner circle were so upset about it. But that was early in the week, and he didn't seem to change anything. He seemed to double and triple right. and quadruple down on it. Uh, Tim, why, do you, right. why don't you think any of that phased him? Well, do, what? can do anything with him. I mean, genuinely. You can maybe put the clamps on him for a week or two, something like that, on some issue. I mean, like, you know, when he was going to fire Bob Mueller, for instance, he he just had his whole legal department threatening to resign if he did, and he backed off. Of course, he's since been screaming, we need to fire Bob Mueller. Same thing with this. Trump sees something that's working. He is an opportunist with things like this, and he's going to keep doing, you know, what works for him. He has no qualms about who it hurts. He has no qualms about whether or not it's true, as as we've seen thousands of times. He has no qualms when you get right down to it what anyone thinks about it long term except for one person and that is Donald Trump because he knows Pence is not going to go anywhere he knows his wife's not going to go anywhere he knows those other people in his administration if some of them do go somewhere then so what he's got rid of half of his administration already he doesn't care he's going to keep doing this that's why I say What do we do about it? I've been asking this so long about this guy. What do we do about it? Do we just stand by and hope the election takes care of it? I I wouldn't do that. Uh, You know, we were going to stand by and let the Mueller report come out, and then, you know, we'd decide what to do. We've done nothing. I mean, what are we going to do about this guy? Because he's going unchecked right now. And he is literally hurting people by what he's saying about them. And these people are elected federal officials that he's going after. Tell him. 
getting them to leave the country and doing it for racial reasons. I never, even Nixon himself wouldn't have said that, even though others that supported him did. Uh, but that was a different America. And, of course, we'll get into that, too. Yeah. But uh, Well, let, let's start to get into that, but let's bring a new voice into it. Uh, welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, Mr. Robin Biro. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, Tim and I are having a discussion, and it's rare that we have our discussion lead right into our guest. But we're going to do that tonight. Um, the first Perfect. thing, we've Love talked it. a lot about the tweets, but let's, we hadn't got into the rally, and we kind of told you that's something we might want to talk about. Donald Trump had one of his uh, early campaign rallies in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, I guess that's more in the eastern part of the state where Eastern Carolina University is. Um, and it, at this rally, he pretty much ginned and juiced up the crowd to uh, attack these four congresswomen, specifically uh, send her back, repre- uh, directed at Representative Amon of Minnesota. Um, is this what we're going to see out of this campaign, things oh, as, as ugly and filthy as uh, what we saw la- the, earlier as this week? Bad as it gets. It, honestly, it's only going to get worse from here, uh, but this is a, a good tactical distraction for him uh, from everything that sort of imploded this past couple weeks with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, his former best friend, and uh, the Labor Secretary Acosta resigning, uh, just everything, just, just a complete meltdown. So, um, but, you know, this, this feeds right to his base. Uh, this is red meat for them. They love it. Um, and, of course, as you recall, uh, Donald Trump said that he didn't like that chant the very next day and that he spoke fastly. Uh, because he was a little bit nervous about them chanting that, and then basically yesterday he was he was even walking back his sort of uh, message that he didn't like it. So I, th- I think it's here to stay, and it's only going to get more ugly. Yes, and, and you had mentioned uh, that, and we were booking you about that distraction. That kind of leads me into another question, and I'm getting in some dicey territory, but since Donald Trump brought us there during the campaign saying that he could stand in Times Square and shoot somebody and yeah. you know most of his base wouldn't care. I got to thinking as I was watching the Daily Show, Trevor Noah, and they were talking about the Epstein case and I mean, my goodness, I just wish I didn't have to know about something like that. A guy that oh, vile no. and what he did uh to to um minor females um it was just horrific. Um, but then I got to thinking, and in no way was Donald Trump been known to engage in any of that. But I thought, you know, just like he talked about just because he didn't take guns out in the middle of Times Square and shoot anybody either, I thought, what if he were be, to be proven to be involved with some of that? How much of his base would care? Um, I have my own answer in my own head, but Robin – how much of his base would even care if it, if a lot of smoke and some fire came out like that? Well, the good answer to that is what happened back in 2016 when the, the then 13-year-old – or excuse me, someone a, – a, a young lady came forward and said that when she was 13 uh, that, that Donald Trump um, sexually abused her at Jeffrey Epstein's house, and she ended up withdrawing that lawsuit. She said because she was harassed so much – by uh, Donald Trump supporters that she she took them to be credible threats on her life. So she withdrew her lawsuit. I think, honestly, we'd see something like that, Uh, much like um, Christine Blasey Ford when she came forward about Jeffrey Kavanaugh, now Supreme Court Justice. uh, There was a lot of victim blaming, and I think we'd see some of that, and it would be uh, excuses as to how, how do we prove that? That happened so long ago. Uh, there would be some some of that, some victim blaming and excuses, and uh, probably harassment. Honestly, like like we've seen before. Um, I mean, Christine Blasey Ford had to have uh, armed security guards with her, and she may still even for that, for all I know. Yes, um, and you unfortunately may be right with some of the more hardcore. Uh, Supporters like that. Um, then I'm gonna ask you one more question related to this. I'm gonna pass it to Tim for some other things. And since Catherine's not on the show, we may go two rounds here. Um, yeah, go ahead. What, uh, Robin? Um, 
what do you think the Republican Party should do about this with an eye towards 2024, 2026, 2030? I mean, their long-term viability. We know in the short term that this may have worked, certainly in 2016, right. could work other places longer. But eventually, this type of politics has a shelf life. I mean, it's, it's a gallon and of milk. Um, yes. What are the, what are the people that are younger that care about their party uh, have to do to curb this so it doesn't do irrevocable damage? Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's sort of what we're seeing, and that's why you see people like Justin Amash leaving the Republican Party uh, because this, he doesn't even recognize that as, as you know the party of family values that they used to be known as, uh, of, of fiscal responsibility. Look at our national deficit. So they have serious problems on their hands, uh, and there's been a lot of talk about them becoming a permanent, maybe even third party in the next 15 or 20 years. Uh, because you know you've got to also look at changing demographics. Their demographic is dwindling, um, and th they really have to, to do a lot of soul searching here. Because you know from this point forward, just imagine uh, evangelicals and, and conservatives can't really claim the moral high ground here going forward and, and turn their nose up at, at some of the things anymore that that might come forward from our party. Even even look at Al Franken. Uh, pretending to hold his hands out now, I think that if, if Christian conservatives now uh, were to, to take issue with something like that, they'd probably be laughed at. Uh, so how, I don't know, but they really have to get – I mean Paul Ryan did himself no favors by not speaking up the entire time uh, and then just, just leaving uh, and writing a book about it. Um, it's going to take people to actually speak up. And to find a spine, you know, Lindsey Graham used to do that, but he's become a sycophant and uh, President Trump's lapdog at this point. So it's going to take people standing up and, and saying something. Yes, and that seems to be uh, a trend. Uh, Jeff Flake would stand up to a point he left the House. Senator McCain, sadly, you know, uh, passed away. Um, right. Others have left. Paul Ryan. Uh, didn't stand up to Donald Trump, but he definitely didn't go along all the time, but he left. And so a lot of these folks, okay. Justin Amash probably is going to be off the stage, uh, even though he st stood up in a much more concrete way, uh, even leaving the party. Uh, but I'm going to pass this thing to Tim for some other questions. Tim? Sure. Good evening, Mr. Biro. How are you, sir? Tim? I'm great. How about you, Tim? Doing well. Um... Do you think that Donald Trump may try to run a repeat of what I recall very distinctly seeing 47 years ago, and that was uh, Richard Nixon's America Love It or Leave It campaign of 1972? you think he's going to try to uh, call on that playbook and run his campaign that way? Tim, they are already printing bumper stickers that say that uh, for the campaign. Um, <laughs> So th th there's your answer, um, and I want to point out too. Of course, you know, nut jobs always co-opt phrases, and and the KKK, as you probably will recall, used to have that as one of their campaign slogans in the South on their billboard. Mm -hmm. That uh, you're in KKK country, love it or leave it. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, it, it's it's a familiar thing. We've heard it for a long time. It has uh, racial undertones. Um, but like I said, they're already printing bumper stickers, so there's your answer, Tim. Mm -hmm. So as a result, will issues take a backseat to a culture war next year? Uh, yes, uh, because we're in an era where it's the, the sound bites, it's the gotchas, uh, uh, the, the trolling of candidates. Those are the things that his supporters love. Uh, and feed off of. They're not so concerned about policy. You, we, you know, I've been, I'm on TV every day, a few times a day. We very rarely get into policy, um, and nobody's talking about the fact that candidates like Elizabeth Warren have page after page after page of foreign policy. I think she's got 72 pages on her website of foreign policy. Mayor Pete had a a, a, a um, dream ticket, dream party of 100 
foreign policy experts that put together his foreign policy. No one's really mentioning that. They're too hung up on the outlandish, bombastic things that this president says. And unfortunately, that's part of what got him elected uh, because it's it has an entertainment value, and I come across people every day that, said this, that say that they never paid attention to politics until 2016 um, because it got to be so wildly entertaining, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you worry that this culture war type of campaign that seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and worse – and 20 times worse than it even was in 1972 with all that was going on then. Do you worry that it creates a society that is so polarized that we will never get anything done again uh, with a purpose of unity in this country? Yes, Tim, uh, I am concerned about that. That's what makes this this upcoming election so important. We've got a lot of really good candidates. I'm a little disappointed that we still have 20 that are going to be on the DNC debate stage this next debate in July. Um, but we've got some good candidates. It's just going to be hard for them to get their message out in such a short period of time. Um, but uh, it, it's it's a pivotal time for our country. Uh, certainly with this cultural war stuff, we've got to get beyond it. We have to have people that are smart and have good policy and are not just looking to get the next big soundbite or next fire off the next tweet that's going to get a, a bunch of people talking and saying, yeah, there's our guy, because it sounds like uh, you know, something that they may have felt. And, and you got to take into consideration, too, uh, that they've done away with um, what they call political correctness, which is really just civility. Civility has gone out of fashion, and I'm not sure what it's going to take, Tim, for that to be to, – to come back in style, um, whether it's a, a disaster, another – you know, I thought maybe the Charlottesville thing would get us there, but it, it ended up making things worse. So I'm not sure what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, b- before you came on, Robin, to be honest, David and I were, were talking about – at what point does Donald Trump hit bottom or go over the line? And I'm, I've just come to the conclusion that at least with his his uh, base, there there is no bottom and there is no going over the line. So I don't know if we have an answer to that. I no, there have been so many times. There have been so many times that we thought that we might be there. You know, look at the time when mm-hmm. his, when uh, New York State forced his charity to close down because it was fraudulent. Um, you know, look at Trump University. All of these things we thought would have somebody might care. No one seems to pay any attention. And the reason that, that Trump supporters give is that they don't care as long as their wallet's fat and that the border's secured. That's the reason they give me every day, all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, now I want to ask you one question ab- about uh, the Democratic field. Uh, going into next year, and I'm going to throw it back to David with a caveat okay. that, that I'll probably want to ask you another question or two before we're out of here tonight. But it's obvious that a lot of Democratic voters are very focused on selecting their nominee next year based mostly on electability, whether that person can defeat Donald Trump. Do you believe that electability is the main thing we should be looking for in our nominee next year? I hate to say, to admit that, but I will. Uh, that is the, the main thing that most people are, are looking at is who of, among these 24, 25 candidates can resoundingly, solidly defeat Donald Trump. I would love to say that it's based off of their foreign policy, their their expertise, of their, their understanding of education uh, and the economy, but it doesn't seem to be that. It really does seem to be who who has it uh, within them to uh, give to give him a defeat. Yeah. Do, do we run the danger of looking for the proverbial person on the white horse as a result? <laughs> yes, we do. And I'm worried a little bit about running uh, too centrist of a candidate. Uh, normally, I would say that that's, that's fantastic, but I'm a little bit concerned in this election. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's a friend of mine, 
He's been wonderful to me and my family. I'm just a little bit concerned as to whether or not we'll we'll uh, turn out with the enthusiasm with his candidacy. Uh, some of the others, the more progressive candidates, of course, you know, these things tend to, to be more progressive in the primary, and then they dial it back to a more centrist uh, position for the general election. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I'm just I'm hoping that somebody gains traction and that, that out of these debates, somebody's going to emerge as a clear front runner. All right. Thank you, sir. And with that, I'm going to throw it back to David. David? Thank you. Yes. Well, um, one question I'd like to ask when we talk about these uh, this presidential primary race, and I guess it's 20 some odd candidates, you can't talk about every single one. So, Robin, right. in your estimation, who's kind of exceeded your expectations and who's kind of underwhelmed you thus far? Uh, the person who has underwhelmed me, I would say, is, is Beto O'Rourke. Uh, I, I really thought that he would, out of his momentum from Texas, uh, I, I cast him probably. Five months ago, as a, a potential uh, dark horse to emerge as, as a formidable opponent, and we really haven't heard much from him. Um, but now, who has emerged that surprised me the most is definitely Mayor Pete. Um, for a couple reasons, he, he this last quarter uh, their financial earnings, the financial disclosures, he earned more than anybody else, any other candidate, which shocked me. Even Joe Biden, um, I had dismissed him early on. And I, I've learned not to dismiss anybody. You know, it's, at this point, it's anyone's game. Um, but but he and uh, certainly, you know, Kamala Harris, she's a friend, uh, and I knew that she would be a strong candidate. Uh, I'm glad to see that her her message is getting out and that she's gaining some traction. I was getting worried about her campaign there for a while. Um, and then um, there are other messages. I I really like Senator Klobuchar. Uh, but I haven't seen her message really get out there like like I would love for it to. Um, but you know we've got we've got a lot we've got a lot of really good. And Elizabeth Warren is amazing on policy. She always has been, but she is she always hits the the where where it, where we need it. And she has helped shape the uh, the debates and the forums and the policies for all of these other candidates. So she's been really interesting to watch also. Yes, and I was fixing the frame of the question when you didn't mention Elizabeth Warren because we do a thing called Buy, Sell, Hold. And, Tim, if I'm not mistaken, we either all either held or sold on Elizabeth Warren early on, and I, she, I think we're all a buy at this point on her um, without putting yeah, words in anybody's definitely. mouth. And I'm speaking to people who are on the show, like Catherine, but I know we all, like she's, you know, really we were not high. We had no idea she connect. Like she has uh, as of late um, on the personal level. I mean, everybody knew she was a policy expert. Um, well, let me talk about somebody you didn't talk about. The person that's been in the race the longest, if you want to give him back to his 2016 run, uh, Bernie Sanders came in with probably more organization and, you know, had been on the trail the most recently. Um, and, and he's not, he's still in the top tier, but he's just not. He, Seemingly hasn't added to what he had in 2016. If nothing, he seems to have been kind of flat. Kind of assess his campaign thus far. Yes, David. That's and that's why I didn't mention him is because it's it's been flat. Uh, it's it's neither unremarkable nor remarkable. It's just right there in the middle. Um, that might serve him well, especially you know I'm interested to see this next debate. He'll be on the debate stage with, with Elizabeth Warren. Um, I don't think that they're, they're good friends. I don't think they're they're gonna, going to attack one another. Um, but I know that he's frustrated right now that that he's not gaining the traction that he wants. Um, but he's also coming out with a lot of policies. Now, you'll, what we've noticed is that he's taking a lot of Elizabeth Warren's policies and tweaking them for himself and saying that he's made them better, that he's improved upon – taken her policies and, and just improved upon them. Um, but it's just not gaining – another thing, I'm sure you've heard that he was just busted for uh, not paying his campaign staff the 50, uh, you know, up to the $15 minimum wage that he's pushing. That hurt. The optics of that really did hurt. Um, and I'll tell you that Elizabeth Warren is paying her campaign staff the most of any of these 24, 25 candidates. Uh, so she's got the cream of the crop campaign staff, and I think that he did a, a strategic misstep by not paying his staff enough. I don't think that he recruited the talent that he needed to. 
Yes, and I do know that gets tricky because the cost of living in California is totally different than the cost of living in, say, Mississippi. I mean, not that either of those are early states, um, but that does get tricky with, uh, you know, rates and all. I guess if you could somehow work in a very low um, cost of living state and then get paid the wages based on somebody's campaign somewhere else, you'd be in great shape. Well, Robin, I could keep on and – well, I – I don't know what Tim's got, though, so if Tim doesn't ask what I'm thinking of, then I'm going to come back one more time, but I'm going to give it back to Tim. Sounds good, Kat. All righty. Um, I, I wanted to ask a rather offbeat question right here, not exactly yeah. about the campaign, but certainly timely in the news, and I'm going to guarantee if you haven't been part of a, a discussion about this, say, on Fox you probably will be. And the question is this. Barring impeachment, have we as a country inadvertently set up a system in which a president is now essentially above the law? <laughs> what happened, Tim, to the party of law and order, right? <laughs> Donald Trump ran as the law and order president, and here he is at every turn uh, seemingly tr- – being above the law, and he doesn't respect the uh, the three branches of government as being separate but equal. He sees himself as above everyone else because he's president. Now, I understand that, but the Constitution says separate but equal. He totally doesn't get that. Um, so you know, I tend to agree with Paul Ryan with the fact that when Paul Ryan said in his book that Donald Trump knew nothing of government when he got elected, it shows. Uh, I don't think he knew much about the law either. I think that his wanton disregard of the law shows in everything that he does. I do believe that he thinks that he is above the law because of who he is and that these Republicans, because they've been lapdogs for the most part, will turn a blind eye to it or justify anything that he does, Tim. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, should we have set up at least impeachment? style hearings in the House. Uh, Tim, what we, what we need to do um, at a minimum, you know, Nancy Pelosi's been walking a fine line on this. Um, she has, yeah. What, what she's got, what, what I'd like to see and what I've been advising on TV and Republicans have been agreeing with me on is that they would like to see, we would all like to see an impeachment inquiry. Uh, and that doesn't require a vote in Congress. That just that that's a procedural issue uh, that would allow us to obtain all of this information, get it out there, and let the public decide uh, with their vote in 2020. Maybe not necessarily go full impeachment. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and several other Democrats are concerned that that would only end up benefiting Trump, and he would use that as a message to say that uh, that we're attempting a coup and trying to throw him out, and you know all of that. Um, so, but an impeachment inquiry, I think, is the best course of action, Tim. Okay, and I'm going to ask you one more question about the campaign, and I'm going to save Georgia because I got a feeling that's what David might like to talk to you about to close out the the, the program tonight. But I, I I want to start by saying this: Elizabeth Warren is 69 years old, Donald Trump is 73, Joe Biden is 76, and Bernie Sanders is 77, and we just uh, listed four of the five prime front runners uh, for the nominations of their respective parties. That being said, is age an issue next year? I don't think. Uh, to, uh, I don't really think that it is so much anymore. Um, but the party has been looking. I mean, look at Mayor Pete was just brought in for closed door meetings with the DNC. Uh, and then we all know we can we can surmise what happened because we saw his fundraising numbers mm-hmm. skyrocket. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that he got the Rolodex basically of, of, of for the DNC and started making those calls. So the the message there, he's 37 years old. I think the party themselves, party leadership, is looking for somebody new. I don't think the voters care all that much about age, but I think the party does. Mm-hmm. Would 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 it be important though to have a thirty-seven year old nominee to contrast with 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 Donald Trump at his age? Do you think? Uh, it would be interesting to have. Uh, I'm not so concerned about his age. I think it would be wonderful to have a veteran 
up there to contrast uh-huh. with Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've got three veterans now that are running. Um, so I would like to see at least in the debate them hammer him more on uh, basically him being an effective commander in chief. Um, you know, especially with everything that's going on right now in Iran, everyone's concerned that we're going to be going to war again. And I'd love to see some veterans hit home on that um, because uh, and, and veterans issues because we, mm-hmm. we still are not there with veterans. Mm-hmm. And that and, and you just hit on the reason that my dark horse, by the way, as the vice presidential pick, Tammy Baldwin. Would that be great or what? (laughs) And with that being said, Robin, I'm going to send it back over to Dave to close the segment out. Dave? Yes, uh, Tim, you can tell you and I have done some podcasts before. Um, (laughs) Kind of know where each other are going. Um, And and we've talked about presidential politics, and of course the presidency is huge. It's the entire executive branch. But if you really want to get things done, unfortunately in our system – you got to hold the House, the Senate, and the presidency to pass bills. And, um, you know, Democrats hold the House, but Republicans hold the Senate. Uh, there's some different races up, but the map's pretty tight. But if you're going to get there uh, for Democrats, you're going to have to win a state like Georgia, if not Georgia, one that's equally, if not even tougher. Um, so let's talk about Georgia since it's all our state yep. uh, that we live in. Um, we've got. Uh, David Perdue, who's raising money, is going to run uh, for re-election. And then we have two announced candidates, both mayors of cities, one of Columbus, one of Clarkston, Teresa Tomlinson and Ted Terry. There may be more folks to get in this race. So maybe let's just focus on the David Perdue part of the equation because uh, we assume a Democrat will run relatively similar because um, people just look at party labels these days. They do, and that's uh, and therein lies the rub uh, here in Georgia. Of course, we're a purple state, uh, but the pre- President Trump sees Georgia as a battleground state um, because polling is not actually looking so well for him here in Georgia. Surprisingly, um, there are also other candidates um, that I know for a fact have exploratory committees. Um, Sarah Riggs Amico, uh, and you know she just ran for lieutenant governor. Um, and uh, John Ossoff, I understand, is, is considering it also. Um, so, you know, we've got some good people out there. Uh, Ted Terry is a good friend of mine. Love him. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson is much loved in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, and Sarah Riggs Amico, I can't say enough positive things about her. Um, so we, we've got some great, some great people, uh, and I expect that they will raise a ton of money because look at what John Ossoff did. Um, and um, – uh, you know, a lot of these people really have a personality that they can bring to the table, like a, a Ted Terry, for example, or a Teresa Tomlinson, um, that can really make a big difference uh, when it comes to countering Purdue. Yes. Now, one thing that I found whenever it gets brought up about the race, and it's not among hardcore politicos, um, one thing that seems to really resonate with folks is that incident – when um, and I'm talking about something negative on David Perdue when he knocked the cell phone out of the student's hand that it was recording him asking a question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you think that incident could become a defining characteristic of David Perdue, much like the Macaca moment did for George Allen? I sure do, uh, because it shows that he doesn't want to be held accountable. He's not about transparency, uh, and that that's not going to fly here with either side of the political aisle. Uh, and there there are really good candidates out there, like Sarah Riggs Amico. She uh, runs a trucking company. She she's a female owner of a trucking company, uh, and she's she, I mean, there are people like these people are really incredible. Uh, and I think that, like I said, I think their personalities will just resonate better with the voters um, as someone that's more warm, friendly, smarter, uh, and can get things done better with more transparency than someone like Purdue. Yes. Well, it'll be an uh, interesting race to watch, along with several others. But uh, given that it's the state we're going to vote in, um, it probably means even more to us. And another thing is I'm big about nesting 
And um, if you can go after the electoral votes, you can go after the Senate race. And then at the same time, you can defend Lucy McBath and try to win the Rob Woodall seat that's mainly Gwinnett yes. County. Um, that gets you, that's kind of a threefer sometimes when you spend your money right um, because you, yes. you're I spending mean. it one time in three different districts. Or, well, I'm calling the state of Georgia a district, but you, you see what I'm saying. You can um, get a lot uh, out of that. Well, Robin, we want to thank uh, you for coming on the show. Anything else you got going on you need to plug before you head out? No, you've you've covered all the bases pretty much. Uh, just just remember what the four congresswomen said that uh, don't take the bait on these tweets that it's a distraction. We need to pay attention to the the the, the, the hard work that we've got to get done. Yes. Well, thanks again, and you keep up the good work on all your TV appearances. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Appreciate the time today. Take care. Yes. All right, Robin Biro, frequent uh, guest of the Kudzu Vine. Always great to have. Um, Robin on the show, so insightful. Uh, well, Tim, let's turn our attention to another one of these Senate races, and this one I don't think is as good a target as Georgia. I alluded this last week, um, but Amy McGrath is running against Mitch McConnell. She raised like $16 million in the first week after she announced, and, and she's probably raised a lot more now. Um, so she's able to raise money, that's for sure. Um, kind of handicap this race in the bluegrass state. Well, McConnell's approval rating is uh, is low right now. He's one of the most unpopular incumbents in the country. That being said, it is Kentucky. I have to mention that Donald Trump won this state by 29.8 points. Uh, 62.5 to 32.7, basically uh, a 30-point win. Eight of the nine members of the U.S. House in Kentucky are Republicans. They got two Republican senators. They got super majorities in both houses of the legislature. Uh, they, they, I know they've got a lot of registered Democrats in that state. I know people have said that, but this is a Republican state right now. Even with the problems he's had with his popularity, Donald Trump's approval rating is in the black by 16 points up there in Kentucky, something like 57-41. So you figure he's going to win the state by 15 to 20 points, and I swear for the life of me, I just cannot see that many people that are going to step in there and vote for Donald Trump and then say 15% of the voters turn around uh, that voted for Donald Trump and vote for Amy McGrath. I, I wish I could see it. I just don't see it happening. I think McConnell is uh, favored to win that race by between five and ten. What do you think? Yeah. Do you remember, I, I loaned you this book after I bought it and read it. It's by Chuck Todd, How Barack Obama Won. And he right. wrote it in, I guess, early 2009. There were, I believe, four states that I guess were backward states, if you will. Barack Obama did so much better in every other state than John Kerry did, except for Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and West Virginia. And um, and if, if there's a fifth state or I've gotten some wrong, I apologize. But I know Kentucky is one of those. And so that tells you how tough the landscape is, that there was some trend – um, from Kerry to Obama that went against the Democrats. Um, and it just hadn't got much better. It seems to be a place where they're just really pretty unhappy with their politicians. Matt Bevin, most unpopular governor in the country. Mitch McConnell, most unpopular senator. Now, some of this may be to the fact of his leadership position. He gets put in so many tough positions. Um and the fact that he's just so dry about things, like I saw the clip where someone mentioned that his wife, Elaine Chow, um, transportation secretary, or maybe maybe that was her former – she's been in the cabinet twice under two mm -hmm. presidents. Um, mm -hmm. But that she came to China as a child and then became a citizen, um, 
how does he feel about go back to where you came from? And he called her the secretary. He didn't even say my wife or Elaine or the love of my life or anything with any man or, or any woman that loved their spouse would try to stand up for their spouse. It was just so clinical. The secretary mm-hmm. can take care of her. So, and, and so you see why there's no real connection on a personal level. My fear is it would be like if um, there were only two flavors of ice cream, chocolate and vanilla, and you only like vanilla, but the vanilla went spoiled. I mean, it had just gone bad. You could not eat it. And somebody said, well, it's ice cream day. You can have uh, – we got all these different kinds of chocolate. We got chocolate with nuts, chocolate with raisins, chocolate with chips, mint chocolate, chocolate cookie dough, everything under the sun that's chocolate. And the person say, well, I don't want any ice cream because the vanilla's gone bad, but I just can't eat the chocolate. And that's kind of what Kentucky's like. They just will not look at the Democratic Party seemingly, even though Steve Bashir was such a popular governor and gave them the health insurance that so many Kentuckians rely on because it was an extension of Obamacare. It was one of the best um, for a state with some financial restraints um, like a lot of southern and you know um, more rural states have, and he was able to do this, but it's like, well, no. We know, you know, Matt Bashir is just so controversial. We know Cocaine Mitch does everything that the GOP wants to do, even if it's not even constitutional. Uh, yeah. So I just think Amy McGrath uh, has such a t- uh, tough road to hoe. And then another thing that came up is this past week she was asked about, um, and I guess was asked twice, or was asked in the past, and she was asked again uh, about Judge uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. And she's completely flip-flopped on it and said she would and said she wouldn't have, have voted to confirm. It seems like one of those issues where everybody has a pretty clear opinion of it. Um, and, and so you'd either be one way or the other, whichever way you looked at it. Um, Tim, how much do you think something like that's going to hurt Amy McGrath that she doesn't I, I seem think it would hurt her. It, it, would, it would make me angry as strong a Democrat a, a, as I am. Um Harry Truman used to say, always tried to tell the truth that way. I didn't have to remember later what I said. But what he was getting at is just, you know, go ahead and say what you think. Be true to who you are. I think the voters will appreciate you being honest. Uh, as much as, as as they would have to, something to say uh, about your stand on an issue, at least they don't have to look in the paper the next day to see to see what you think about something or how you vote on something. Be true to yourself. I mean, how she was going to vote on Judge Kavanaugh is not going to win or lose her that race anyway. And, and, you know, she needs a strong Democratic turnout. She needs every Democrat she can get her hands on to come flying out and vote for her. And they're not going to be uh, so so quick to do that if their choices are Republican and Republican light. You know, David, you mentioned before we go off the governor's race. Now, there is the important one. There is the interesting one. And there is the one that comes up first. Um, and I think it's going to be very interesting because in Kentucky, as red as it is, we have an unpopular Democratic Party nationally. That's true. But we also have an unpopular governor that is running for reelection in that state. And so could we say that maybe Kentucky in many ways somewhat mirrors maybe the national race next year? Possibly, but it's got such different dynamics. It might mirror the state in some of those counties and districts in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin that uh, Donald Trump flipped to then um, win those states. Um, Mm -hmm. I heard a professor on 538 from Pennsylvania talking about some of the states that Donald Trump won that has um, net positive Democratic uh, registration. 
And, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's a lot of places in Kentucky. Kentucky's one of those states where you probably still have a lot of elected officials that are Democrats and long-time Democrats, but they will cross over the other side of the aisle pretty quickly on some federal races and in many ways aren't Democrats anymore um, the way we would see them on national issues. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's a tricky state, and I do think, you know, um, Andy Bashir has a better chance than Amy McGrath does. Um, won't raise the money, she will, uh, and because that money's a lot of it's raised just based on, you know, Mitch McConnell. Another thing, there is a Democrat that was so displeased with that answer that she gave on Brett Kavanaugh, who's now considering the race. Now you raise sixteen million, and you got to spend some on a primary race, and then your primary opponent comes in and. He or she gets sixteen million raised because, hey, this is the one we want to give um, to defeat Mitch McConnell. And I bet if there's some people that can have a refund on that money, not so much that they're just so incensed that the, the waffling, but it'd just be like uh, the the roulette wheel's still spinning. I wish I wasn't play place my bets. I wish I could have held on to my money longer, and that way I could have given it to the uh, possible better Democrat. I wish they would <laughs> held on their money a little longer and gave it to a little better state that has a little better chance. Um, and I could name three or five in a quick hurry uh, that I yeah, think are really. more persuadable and flippable. Well, yeah. um, hopefully uh, we'll get Catherine back next week. And then next week we've uh, already got our, our guest book, David Jonas, who is co-writing a book with uh, Tegan Goddard of Political Wire. It's called Spitball, uh, all about politics. And it's an interesting format um, if you're – uh, subscriber to Political Wire, you can go ahead and read the first three chapters, the ones they've published, because we'll be talking to Mr. Jonas about it next week. Until then, by the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. Right. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?